0: Today, I want to talk to you about what's happening in our culture with regard to morality. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that it's getting pretty crazy out there. In one of my older books, I wrote about what I call the circle of acceptance. If you can imagine a circle. And inside the circle are all the behaviors that we consider to be morally acceptable. And outside the circle are all the behaviors we consider to be immoral or unacceptable. Well, the problem is that over the last maybe 40 or 50 years, the circle of acceptance has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So that behaviors that used to be outside the circle are now inside the circle. And behaviors that used to be... eh, You know, on the edge of the circle, have now moved toward the center of the circle. The result being that if you compare a snapshot of today's culture with what we had, say, maybe 40 or 50 years ago, you'll see it's drastically different. People are accepting behaviors today that they never would have accepted, um, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. And here's the thing you have to realize people my age, lived through those years of change. We watched the deterioration happen, so we understand that things haven't always been like they are today. We can remember, for example, when morality was very specifically defined by uh, uh, you know, a Judeo-Christian worldview. But young people today, in particular millennials, don't have that kind of historical perspective because they weren't alive. Back then, when the circle of acceptance was a lot smaller. The point being that what seems so upsetting to me and people my age when we look at our culture, all the behaviors that are being accepted, things that seem upsetting to me don't bother younger people because they don't remember when it was different. What's happening in our culture today for a lot of young adults is it's just the way it's always been, and that's concerning. Because when immorality starts to feel normal, then we lose any impulse we might have to try to correct it or to fight against it. Let me give you an example. Back when I went into ministry 40-some years ago, very few people lived together before they were married. Uh, We call it cohabitation. It didn't happen very often especially in the Christian community, because it was considered to be immoral. But the circle of acceptance has grown so big now that that's one of those behaviors that has moved inside the circle. Today, most people consider cohabitation to be no big deal. That's why if you talk to a young couple that's living together without being married, um, and you suggest that maybe their living arrangement's Put them outside the parameters of God's will. They'll look at you like you've got two heads. It's like, oh, don't you understand? We're saving money. We're gonna we're gonna save up and buy a house when we get married. As if that answers everything. And if you say, well, yes, but, but let's think about what the Bible says. Immediately, they brand you as being hopelessly old-fashioned and out of touch. And even if they're kind enough to let you say your piece, chances are they're going to walk away thinking you just don't get it. And this is a tremendous challenge for the church today. We need to figure out how we're going to respond to a culture that has pretty much lost its moral compass. What can we do here at PCC? to make a difference. Well, I think we can probably all agree that there are things Christians often do that don't help. Uh, for example, one would be uh, griping about the situation. I've heard Christians go off on some epic rants about the condition of our uh, country today, the moral condition of our country. And I suppose it, you know, helps people to feel better when they get that frustration off their chest, but it doesn't really help the situation. A second thing that doesn't help is arguing with people who hold a different point of view. When I was younger, I used to like to engage people in debate and argument about social issues, the kind of things we're talking about today. But then one day, in a moment of clarity, it occurred to me that in all the debates and all the arguments I'd ever had with people, not once had I ever talked anybody into changing their point of view. Not once. In fact, usually what happens is they dig their heels in even deeper. And sometimes the relationship is damaged by the argument. And so years ago, I kind of just gave it all up. I don't hardly ever argue with people anymore about morality or social issues. Because it doesn't help. A third thing that doesn't help is judging. You know, it feels good sometimes, I guess, when you're watching the news and you see the horrifying things that are happening in our culture. Maybe it feels good to just pronounce judgment on the whole mess. But it doesn't really help anything. In fact, I think the more judgmental we seem, the more judgment we cast, the less anyone in the world is going to want to listen to anything we have to say. Judgment doesn't build bridges, it builds walls. So, if griping and arguing and judging don't help, what kind of options do we have left? Well, as always, I want to take you back to the scriptures, to a Bible story that you may be familiar with, um, that teaches us a lot about how to respond to a morally corrupt culture. The story is found in the book of Daniel, the third chapter, And it centers around three young Jewish men who found themselves living in Babylon. Now, they didn't want to live in Babylon, but their area, Jerusalem, where they lived, had been conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And and many of the Jews were rounded up and taken back to Babylon as captives. And so very suddenly, these three young men found themselves living in a very morally corrupt culture. And things came to a head... When King Nebuchadnezzar built a big gold statue of himself, yes, he had ego issues, built a big gold statue of himself and demanded that everybody bow down and worship it. At certain times of the day, they were going to play music. And the law was that when you heard the music, no matter where you were or what you were doing, you were supposed to stop and bow down and worship the statue. And the herald who was announcing this to the people said this in Daniel 3.6. He said, anyone who refuses to obey will be thrown into a blazing furnace. And you may remember what happened. These three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, said, um, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to bow down and worship your statue. Daniel 3.17, they said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now I entitled this message, A Lion in the Sand, because that's what we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego drawing in this passage, metaphorically speaking. They were living in Babylon, a very corrupt culture, and there were certain things about that they couldn't change. Certain things about that they just had to accept, but they had a limit. They drew their own circle of acceptance, you might say, and they said, look, we're not stepping out of this circle. You can do whatever you want to us. You can throw us in a furnace if you want to, but we're not budging. And so what I want to do today is make three applications from this story that I think will help us as we think about how to respond to the morally corrupt culture we live in. First of all, I'm struck by how respectful Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were toward this man who was threatening them with death. Did you notice how they even called him your majesty? Not just once. But twice, a term of respect, acknowledging his authority as king. Now, that surprises me. I wouldn't have expected them to do that. I would have expected them to say to King Nebuchadnezzar, look, you have no authority over us. We don't recognize you as our king. Our king is the God of heaven. You can say whatever you want. We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to pay any attention to you. We have no respect for you. I would have expected them to say something like that, but they didn't. They suppressed whatever anger they may have been feeling toward this guy, and they talked to him in a very calm and respectful way. Several years ago, a young family started attending our church, and I visited with them, and they told me that they were looking for a new church. They said that their old church wasn't working for them anymore, Uh, There'd been a problem there, and they they were coming uh, to to check us out. Well, I've told you before that when somebody tells me they're coming to our church from another church where there was a problem, I want to know what that problem was, because I want to know if they're bringing it with them into our church. And so very politely, I said, well, do you mind if I ask what the problem was in your old church? And the mother told me a very interesting story. She said that one day they were on their way home from church on a Sunday morning, their old church, and their little boy in the back seat, who was about eight years old, piped up and said, Mom, Dad, what's the preacher so mad about? And the mother said, Well, he's not mad, honey. He's just preaching. And the little boy said, Well, he sure sounds mad to me. And the mother said that, That comment got her and her husband thinking. She said, from that point on, my husband and I began to notice how much anger there was in the sermons and how judgmental they sounded. And she said, I think the reason we never noticed it before is because we were used to it. But she said, once our little boy commented on how angry the preacher sounded, we began to notice, yes, he does sound really angry. And then she said this. So right now, we're looking for a new church. We want a church that preaches the Bible, but doesn't act like it's mad at the world. Friends, listen. Tone matters. If we act and talk like we're mad at the world, and if we're always spewing judgment out upon people, it's going to be pretty hard for us to convince the lost that we love them and care about them. I remember the time a young woman started attending this church, and I could tell that she was a little rough around the edges. I could tell she had probably lived a pretty rough life. Um, but she asked if she could uh, play on our church co-ed softball team. And so on the first day she came to a softball game, it was a Sunday afternoon, blazing hot, about like it is this time of year, about 90 degrees and high humidity. Uh, The thing I noticed about this young woman was that she always wore long sleeves and long pants. At church or anywhere I saw her, she was always wearing long sleeves and long pants. And that's unusual in Florida, but especially when you're outdoors playing sports in the afternoon sun. And so we were sitting in the dugout, she and I, all of our teammates were out on the field playing defense. And it was just she and I in the dugout. We were talking, kind of getting acquainted. And... uh, Really without thinking, it was so hot that day. I just said, boy, aren't you hot in those long sleeves and long pants? And she gave me a look. Didn't say a word. Reached down and pulled up her pant leg. And then she pulled up her sleeve. And I got it. This is what she said. I'll never forget this statement. She said, one thing I've learned, see, she had tattoos all over her legs and arms. She said, one thing I've learned about Christian people is that when they first see my tattoos, they immediately judge me as being trashy. She said, so I decided when I started coming to your church that I was just going to keep them covered up for a while until people got to know me. And when she said that, a little piece of my heart broke. Friends, we gain nothing for the kingdom when we are harsh and judgmental. We endear ourselves to no one when we go around acting like we're superior, like we're mad at the world, and we go around judging people based even just on their appearances. In fact, we distance ourselves from the Christ we say we serve when we treat people in ways that He never would. Here we are judging a girl because she's got tattoos on her arms and legs while Jesus is over here showing grace and kindness and forgiveness to a young woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. We're over here in our workplace and we're condemning someone and judging someone because they live an alternative lifestyle while Jesus is over here showing kindness and having a civil, friendly conversation with a woman who's had five husbands and is living with her boyfriend. We claim to be a people of the book. We love our Bibles. We cherish our Bibles. We preach our Bibles. We teach our Bibles. But it seems to me there's one thing in the Bible we've missed. And that is that tone matters. We have absolutely no hope of ever influencing the world for Christ if the the world thinks we're angry at them and sitting around judging them all the time. We need to lighten up and develop a more civil, a more forgiving tone when we interact with the world. Here's a second application from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They chose faithfulness over futility. If you look around at our culture today, you'll see that there are a lot of people who are very concerned about the things we're talking about today, uh, the immorality of our culture. But many of those people are wasting their time and energy on futile endeavors. For example, not long ago, I stopped at an intersection in Orlando, and I looked up, and there on the corner was a street preacher at a little amplifier. And it had a microphone, it had a big sign set up that said, Jesus saves. It was in the afternoon, and uh, again, it was hot. And he was preaching his heart out. He was yelling into that microphone and gesticulating, just pouring his heart out. Um, he did not have one listener. People were walking by different directions. I saw one mother of a little child grab the child's hand and walk in a wide berth around the preacher as if she was half scared of him. And I'm not saying that all street preaching has been futile in history. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that day, that guy was expending an awful lot of energy and it didn't appear that he was accomplishing anything. And I think you could make the case that he was doing more harm than good. I admire his courage. But as I sat there and saw him preaching his heart out without a single listener, I wondered. What I notice about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they did not feel compelled to do anything but be faithful. Now, there are other things they could have done to protest that morally corrupt culture. Maybe they could have gone on a hunger strike. Or, more realistically, maybe they could have pulled some of their fellow Jewish captives together and organized some sort of underground resistance movement. There are other things they could have done, but I think they knew those things would be futile. And so instead, they said, look, let's just be faithful. Let's just stand on our convictions and let God use our witness however he sees fit. And boy, did God ever use their witness. And I think this is something we sometimes forget, that God can use a simple, godly life to spread his influence. Remember when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. He also said, You are the light of the world. He was talking about ordinary believers simply living their faith day by day. When you go out to work or school or wherever you go and you just live your faith, you just honor Christ in everything you do, you become a light in the dark. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's a bad thing to get involved in some movement or mission project or, or, or whatever that is attempting to do great things in the world. There are lots of good causes. But whatever you do, your first priority ought to be simply to be faithful. I am convinced that we don't need thinkers and writers and debaters and organizers and protesters and street preachers nearly as much as we just need an army of God's people, to go out into the world every day and let their lights shine. Just honor Christ in everything you do. Well, there's one more application I want to make very quickly. I like the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stuck together through this whole ordeal. Now, maybe their faith would have been equally as unshakable if they had each been standing before the king alone But I've got to believe it was easier for them, that their faith was bolstered, that their witness had more power because they were standing there together. Friends, there is power in a group. Jesus understood this. That's why he chose 12 disciples to help him with his ministry. That's why he put the apostles as a group in charge of those early churches instead of just identifying one person to be calling the shots. That's why the Bible teaches us today that a plurality of elders is important because there's power in a group and that power has a name. We call it synergy. Synergy is the word we use to describe a simple fact of life that a group of people working together will almost always be able to accomplish more than those same people working separately or individually. And the church itself is probably the greatest example of synergy the world has ever known. We have schools and clinics and hospitals and missions all around the world that would not exist without the synergistic efforts of churchgoers. And that's why we all need to be actively involved in church and what the church is doing. When you go to church and you serve in the local community through the the ministry teams of the church and you give your money to help support the church and the mission work of the church around the world, you are helping to create positive results in a morally corrupt culture that you would never be able to create on your own. But here's the thing. A lot of people get frustrated with the church for one reason or another. A lot of people quit going to church. They quit giving to the church. And If you ask those people, I'm sure they can give you a dozen reasons why they're angry or frustrated or upset or whatever. But if you ever get to that point where you're thinking about dropping out of church, maybe you've convinced yourself that church isn't important and you can be a Christian without the church, whatever, I want you to think about this. When you abandon the group, you weaken the group and you empower the enemy of the group. Now think about that. When you abandon the group, you weaken the group and you empower the enemy of the group. This is why during wartime, it's a common practice to drop leaflets on the enemy. On enemy encampments, you fly planes overhead and you drop leaflets. And the enemy picks up the leaflet and they begin to read. And the leaflet says, you are completely surrounded. We are going to attack you in 24 hours. You are going to die unless you drop your weapons and walk away. And the reason we do that is because we want them to abandon the group. When you abandon the group, you weaken the group, and you empower the enemy. I'll just say it this way, and this might sound a little blunt, but so be it. If you claim to be a Christian, Before you open your mouth to complain about our morally corrupt culture, you better make sure you're in church and you're supporting the church and you're working through the ministry arms of the church. Otherwise, your words ring pretty hollow. It's kind of like complaining about your weight while you're holding a cheeseburger in your hand. I mean, if you're not willing to do the one thing you could do to make a difference, then don't complain about it. Well, as you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, and we know that God protected them. In fact, I love what the Bible says there. It says, when they came out of the furnace, they were unharmed, and they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. That's how well God protected them. And there's more to the story you can read if you want to. Uh, But I want to wrap this up with a true story. Martin Niemöller was a Lutheran pastor back in the 1930s when Nazism was on the rise in Germany. And he spoke out, Against the Nazis, and as you might expect, he was arrested and taken to a concentration camp. When he arrived at that camp, the Nazis knew they had a prized prisoner. They knew this was the pastor who was so famous for speaking out against the regime, and so they put their heads together and tried to come up with an idea of how they could make his life even more miserable than it ordinarily would have been there. And they finally got an idea. They put him in a small cell, and then they found another prisoner to put in there with him. And the other prisoner was a notorious atheist. And not just an atheist, he was a loudmouth, belligerent atheist. And the Nazis thought that would be so funny to put him in there with the pastor and just let him persecute the pastor. But an interesting thing happened. After a few days, the guards noticed that the two men were not yelling at each other or arguing. They were just having normal, civil conversations. And then a few days later, one of the guards walked by and looked into the cell and saw the two men on their knees praying together. And they immediately unlocked the door and dragged the atheist, who's no longer an atheist, out of the cell. That's a true story. I love that story because it's such a reminder that kindness and humility and simple faithfulness can triumph even over the most belligerent opposition. Friends, I know this world is in a mess. I know it's discouraging. But if we can just take a lesson from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if we can just strike a more positive respectful tone. And if we can make faithfulness our, our everyday priority to go out into the world, no matter where we go, school, work, wherever, and just honor Christ with everything we do, we can be a light in the darkness. And then if we can synergize our efforts through the outreach and the ministry of the church, we can make a difference. No, the world is never going to do a 180. This, this culture is never going to turn completely around. But individual lives can turn around. And when one life turns around, that can turn around a marriage. And when one marriage turns around, that can turn around a family. And when one family turns around, that can turn around a neighborhood. And when a neighborhood turns around, that can turn around an entire community. I know it's discouraging when you watch the news and you see everything that's happened, but we ought to be able to walk out of this place with uh, hope that all is not lost, that God can do great things through kind people who are faithful and who will synergize their efforts. Let's pray.